0: And if you start with welfare, if you start with the animal's welfare, and you focus on that and you keep that as center priority, everything good comes from it.
1: Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people join me on my raw safari hi hello hello welcome back to the podcast that's taking you back to school the raw safari podcast That's right, y'all. We are still in the midst of our uh, lengthy time in Florida at the start here of season two. And uh, we're going to a facility that's pretty unique. As a matter of fact, it's one of only two colleges that I know about in the country that have an actual teaching zoo. You heard about the first one in season one. And today you're going to hear about the only AZA accredited teaching zoo in the United States of America, because we are going to the Santa Fe teaching zoo, which is in Santa Fe, New Mexico, right? No, totally not. In fact, it's in Gainesville, Florida, which is how I was able to get there while gigging in Florida. And, like, obviously, a big part of this episode is going to be hearing about my guest talking about why Santa Fe Teaching Zoo is incredible and why you might want to go there. But don't worry, it's not going to just be an ad. Unlike this ad to remind you to make sure you're following along at Rossafari on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rasafari Pod on TikTok. And of course, if you want to support the pod financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Uh, It starts at as little as $3 a month, and you get all kinds of cool features, including bonus audio from many of the episodes, including this one. <laughs> Sorry, y'all, but you know I love my cheesy transitions. Anyway, today I am bringing you an interview with Jonathan Mio who not only has the best first name of any guest I've had on the podcast so far, but also is the director of the Santa Fe Teaching Zoo in Gainesville, Florida. We talk about all kinds of stuff. Obviously, we talk about the program there, and it is unique, the only one like it in the entire country, but you are going to get a ton of animal stories about some animals that you may hear about all the time, but also cool stuff like bongo antelope and uh, clip springers, which is just very entertaining. I I love that story. Also... The Santa Fe Teaching Zoo is home to Eckie and Adelaide, to Matji's tree kangaroos, and y'all know we are going to talk about them a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot, because of course we are. It's great. And then on top of that, we're going to talk about a lot of the amazing conservation work being done at this zoo. Despite the fact that they are the smallest AZA facility in Florida and one of the smallest in the country, they are doing some amazing work with some incredible species, including Perdido Key beach mice, Eastern Florida grasshopper sparrow, which is the most endangered bird in the U.S., and Guam rails, which used to be... Extinct in the wild. Yep, it's pretty exciting hearing about how this zoo and others are helping bring them back from extinction. On top of that, you'll also hear about me meeting a species that I had never met before. And I can tell you, it's going to shock you. And there are a lot of you listening who are going to think, huh, did not see that one coming. Probably not for the reasons that you think either. So, I'm going to throw it to the different kind of ad and then we will get to the interview. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner daydreamer studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate you can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording editing audio engineering hosting and publishing on 22 platforms Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end, ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, y'all, it is time. And I can honestly tell you that this interview continues the uh, trend that I encountered in Florida of speaking to people who just inspired the hell out of me. And I am sure that you will be at least as inspired as I was. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jonathan Mio, director of the Santa Fe Teaching Zoo. (laughs) So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here? The big three.
0: Absolutely. So my name is Jonathan Mio. I am the director of the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo and the Santa Fe College Zoo Animal Technology Program, and we are in the place where dreams come true.
1: Well done. <laughs> that's that's incredible.
0: And, and here's the thing: it really is because we train zookeepers, and I have I have students who come through my door. Let's say, every single year, they say, I have always wanted to be a zookeeper. This has been my dream. I knew when I was a little kid that I wanted to be a zookeeper. I didn't think you could go to school for this. And yet here we are. So absolutely, I literally make students' dreams come true every single year. And it's because of that, it's a magical place.
1: That is awesome. And it is a magical place. Also because <laughs> of the tree kangaroos. But, well, yeah, yeah. Um, but so, um, you know, there are other teaching programs Mm -hmm. and and such, but there's something that sets you guys apart. Mm -hmm. This is an AZA accredited zoo. Absolutely. Um, And it is a two-year program, right? And now listeners to the podcast have heard so many people say you need a four-year biology degree to become a zookeeper. Yep. Uh, So what's your placement like?
0: So our placement rate is 85%. Which is incredible, which is amazing. and and I will tell you, I'm one of those people with a four- year degree in biology. And I enjoyed my time in college. I met a lot of great people, but it trained me zero to be a zookeeper. Um, I actually got my degree and I went into the next logical thing when you have a biology degree, I started in computers. and I got <laughs> and I worked in computers for uh, about two years, three years, did a lot of great things, had fun, made a lot of money, hated my life. So I uh, hooked back up with my undergraduate research professor, and um, he was doing research at Busch Gardens, Tampa, Florida. So I came down to Tampa, Florida, and took a job for six dollars and thirty-two cents an hour, and I loved it, and I've loved every minute since. And you know, that's the thing: is a bachelor's degree is beneficial for some things, but now with the price of college, a bachelor's degree is not actually applicable to being a zookeeper and you have a lot of money to pay off at the end and you're not making a lot of money. So honestly, I I think that our program it's not for everybody. I don't say this is the only way to do it, but I think it's a great option if you think, hey, I want to be a zookeeper and you want to tr- even if you want to try it out before you get the job then this is the way to do it. Because getting the job is the hard part, is the really hard part.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Once once you're in, you're kind of in. You're in. So, yeah. Um, so let's, I, I want to get into so many different things, but since <laughs> we're in the program right now, let's talk about what sets your program aside. <laughs> um, you know, we, we did an awesome little tour of the zoo, and I got to see a lot of the keepers working. And one thing that stood out to me is that the keepers were zookeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was nobody standing over them and, um, you know, feeding them little pellets and doing
0: positive reinforcement or
1: anything. <laughs> right. Um, they were keeping. So, so talk to me about that and, and what the experience is like for students here.
0: Right. So it is, like you said, it's two year program. So it's five semesters. It's sequential. You don't get a summer off. You don't get Christmas off. You don't get a spring break off because you are a zookeeper. You're taking care of the animals and the animals don't get that time off. So the students are here nonstop for five semesters. But the difference is, they are the ones exactly you said it. They're the ones taking care of the animals, because you learn to do something by doing it. You're a musician. Yep. Did you learn to be a musician by watching a PowerPoint presentation?
1: Absolutely not. And people who nowadays tell me that they they're trying to learn just by watching YouTube and stuff. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't doesn't sit well with my brain.
0: <laughs> I, I I don't think so either. I've got. Um, Three young boys at home, but two that are can ride bikes. And again, for them to ride bikes, I did not show them a PowerPoint presentation. I got the bike out. I put them on the bike. They got on the bike. They fell down. They got up, and they rode their bike. Right. It's the same thing with zookeeping. You come here. We do give you PowerPoint presentations, but the students are here in the zoo working as zookeepers four days a week every single week, and they're working every animal within the zoo. So they take a ter- turn as well as uh, in commissary. Education outreach with our ambassador animals. They're working every animal in the zoo and they get to be zookeepers by being zookeepers. The only animals that we are standing next to them when they're working every single time are our venomous reptiles. That is it. When they work venomous reptiles, we stand directly next to them because, well, that's a real life and death situation. Otherwise, They are working with the animals by themselves. We teach them, we train them, we give them feedback, we give them support, but they are doing it. So when they come out, they have the confidence to do the job as a zookeeper because they've been a zookeeper, as you said, in an AZA-accredited facilities. So our expectations and our requirements are very high for these students, and we hold them accountable to a lot of um, really important tasks that they need to do on a daily basis.
1: That's awesome. And uh, when we talked about your collection, you have something interesting to balance here because normally people have to balance like their conservation message or or however their zoo set up and um, the the wishes of the public. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you have a third element in that you also have to think about the students. So how does that impact things?
0: Absolutely. So the the big thing when you come into the zoo, the first thing is no lions, tigers, bears. Oh my! You know, <laughs> we just don't have them here. And I've And I've worked with all of them, and they're amazing animals, and they are incredible. It's incredible to work with those large carnivores. But the reality is when you make a mistake with them, potentially the last mistake you will ever make. And we can't do that here with students. Again, the reason why the program is successful, we have an 85% placement rate. We have students all over the country in all sorts of zoos. The reason why they're successful is because they are doing the work. And in order to do that, we have to draw back a little bit on the type of species we have. So we have cats. We just have caracals and ocelots instead of lions and tigers. Uh, We have primates, but instead of gorillas, we have capuchins or we have our white-handed gibbons. So again, they can still hurt you. They can still bite you. You still have to be safe around them. They can still escape. So we can still have problems there. But again... They have to learn how to do things correctly. And again, like I said, you don't have to shift a tiger to know how to shift an animal safely. Shifting an ocelot, shifting a caracal is, you know, can be just as potentially nerve-wracking, especially if you're a brand new z And again, I love my big cats. But the caracals, we didn't get a chance to take a look at them. Those caracals, they are a great small cat because they are feisty. They are feisty <laughs> little cats. And I love them for it because the students are absolutely the keepers here, absolutely intimidated by them, which you should be. You should be intimidated by a cat you're working with. Every day I walked into a, one of my um, large cat houses, I made sure I really, really took a second and really think about where I am and what I am doing. Because if you don't, that's when you make mistakes that you can't come back from.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: And so that's what we're teaching the students here. And you can teach them that without putting their life on the line on a daily basis. Which is what zookeepers do. By the way, zookeepers put their life on the line on a daily basis. And I know we don't talk about it, and we love all sorts of our, our first responders and all sorts of our emergency personnel. They do great work, but zookeepers are also doing things that are exceptionally dangerous on a daily basis. And so we have to train them for that career.
1: That, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And um, like you said, you know, the species that are here may not be as deadly, but. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen capuchins do some stuff. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some tree kangaroos. Do, okay, that's a lie. <laughs> but no, the truth cute, is, uh, cute somebody yeah, to death. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, but the the truth is, you know, like you said, shifting is shifting, and mm-hmm. the strategies are the same. And I mm-hmm. think that's a really uh, really great approach to it. Um, so do the students that come here still have to do like? Uh, you know, a basic course load. You still have to take college math and mm-hmm. all of that while zoo keeping.
0: Yes. While zoo keeping. Wow. So, so it is okay. an associate's degree. So it's less coursework, but it is, you have to take math, English, um, a psychology. You have to take all of our zoo classes, which is the bulk of the degree. And that's why the way this degree works out better is because the bulk of it is directly related to the field. We had lots of students who come to us and say, I really didn't like school before. I never was successful. It's because you have to sit through, you know, no offense to my my finance majors, but you have to sit through, sit through a microeconomics course. Right, right. You don't have to do that here. You have to sit through a breeding class and a nutrition class and mammal culture, herpiculture, the things you really love. So you have to sit in a class and learn about things you love. It doesn't get any better than that. Their zoo classes are held here on grounds. They are train, trained by professionals who have been zookeepers. So every single approach we have is from the field what does a zookeeper need to do what are the things that we really needed in the field and we're going to teach you that stuff and then I, like i said on top of it you're out in an aza accredited zoo working every single day the students uh we just had our aza um, accreditation inspection past this past june um they will determine our if we are accredited again in uh october but the students Students were the keepers out there in the zoo that the inspection team spoke to. Can you imagine that on your resume? Like, hey, I already went through AZA accreditation. That's incredible. Right. I already had to speak to an inspection team and give them my perspectives on animal welfare and enrichment and habitat design. Because we do all those things here. By we, I mean our students do that. Students do welfare assessments. They create enrichment and evaluate enrichment. They design and build build the habitats there. That's
1: the craziest part of all of this, by <laughs> the way. Like when you told me that, I was blown away. And as we did a tour of the zoo, I got to see habitats that were built by students that are zoo habitats. They're great. Yep. Like they- they work. They, I mean, they more than work. They are good. If you hadn't told me that, I would have never assumed mm-hmm. that it was anything less than what, you know, anyone at the Columbus Zoo or Cincinnati Zoo or whatever does, you yep. know. Uh, it's incredible.
0: Yep. And yeah. again, it's all of the skills. It's all the hands-on practical skills. And the way the program works, it's set up that everybody comes through and you are ready to be a zookeeper, what I, what I consider an entry-level, the door zookeeper at any zoo out there. But if you want to do more while you're here, you absolutely can. You can get involved in more. You can become an apprentice, so you can work closer with our education curator. And you can do more of the outreaches, or you can design programs that you present to students. You can um, become an enrichment apprentice. So you can do more of whatever you are interested in if you get involved here in the program. When you leave here, again, 85% placement rate. That's within a year of um, graduation. Some of our students still start out with internships because it's an extremely difficult field to get into. For every one zookeeper position, there's about 400 applicants for that zookeeper position. So it's still really um, competitive. Some of our students still take internships. But once they do that, once they're in a facility and they're doing the internship – then that facility is gonna see how well they work out, what they know, they're gonna blow the doors off of every other intern, and then they're a shoe in for another position. Right. So it works out really, really great. Um, the students here really appreciate it, but it's a lot of hard work, and it's a lot of hard work because I know what it's like being a zookeeper. And I know the type of work that you have to endure when you're out there, and I'm not gonna train you for a job that once you get out there is completely different. So um again, if you come here, Expect to have your dreams fulfilled, but expect to work your butt off because that's what zookeepers do.
1: Yeah, that's how dreams get fulfilled, Uh, (laughs) y'all. I think so many people have this notion that, you know, people who do what they love are lucky. And um, there's always an element of luck to everything. I'm not going to deny that. It is a element, but – I get to live my dream because I worked really hard and, and followed the right connections. And, um, heck same with this podcast. I, I get to do all these cool things with cool animals at cool zoos and, uh, you know, cause I work really hard at it. And so I, I think that is a great message for anyone to hear and to be reminded of constantly dreams take work to, to come out of the whole sleep phase.
0: So. Yep. Yep. I mean, then, and, and, and I agree to some extent with, luck i think you put yourself in a position to take advantage of luck, yes 100% you know? and and i think like you said it's about connections so for me i didn't go through this program and i became a zookeeper it's not the only way to become a zookeeper but i had a connection with my undergraduate professor and he got me in at a zoo they wouldn't have looked at me give me a second look if it wasn't for him so it's about those connections mm-hmm. But everything I learned, I learned because I had great mentors at that zoo, at Bush Gardens, at Zoo Atlanta, at every zoo I've been to. I've had great mentors that have helped shepherd me along the way. And that's what it is, too. It's, a, it's hard work, but it's also about building relationships with people and, you know, and really, really appreciating what you can learn from everybody you interact with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I do have a, a question for you. So, this is a school. And uh have you heard of this covid thing? Uh,
0: yeah well, I've, I've, yeah've heard, heard something oh, about yeah, it in the news okay. yep, yep
1: so um <laughs> I assume that the school had to go either you know, close down or go to virtual or whatever um during covid. but y'all are a zoo, and as you said, you know, don't get Christmas off, don't get. so how did that work?
0: right? so it was um it was really dicey at first, and i will I I'll be honest we were a little nervous. so we do have quite a few students, depending on the semester, we have three different cohorts or two cohorts, just depends. Um, So we can have anywhere between 90 and 120 students, which is a lot of labor. But for staffing, we really only have about nine full-time staff members. And then we have five adjunct instructors that are part-time. So we don't have a lot of staffing. And so it got a little dicey, but I'll tell you, the school, Santa Fe College, stepped up when they barred every student and every employee from being on grounds, they hired our zookeepers in. So our our students changed over from students who weren't allowed on grounds to being employed by the college <laughs> and were given special dispensation to be allowed to be on grounds.
1: That is so cool. It
0: was it was amazing. And again, this is this is this is what you need to survive. You need support. You cannot do it alone and this uh the college really supported us and really understood the value of the program and understood what we needed to do to survive so as i said zoos across the country were laying off people furloughing people and we were hiring and it was it was amazing to feel that kind of support we got through it really well we didn't have any major in- incidences here um and halfway through that first summer we were able to move back and have students coming back on grounds because the college saw not just with our program, but the value of having hands-on instruction for some of the programs. So we moved to a situation where we were back allowed to teach on grounds where it was appropriate. And we continue to do that. And we've we've thrived since. We were closed for a while, but now we're back open to the public. Um, again, as an AZA institution, we we are open to the public. Uh and the public has been extremely receptive of coming back and being here and being involved. And again, we just do, we are just grateful for the opportunities we have had.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really cool.
0: Um,
1: how did uh, this college decide to get a zoo? Like, how did this all
0: begin? Uh, so the the program is really interesting. It uh, we just well, we were supposed to celebrate our fiftieth year anniversary in twenty twenty, um, but instead we had a pandemic. Yeah. So um, so now we're on our fifty first year, and it started actually with two gentlemen, and it was originally a zoo and a horticultural program. So the college was just starting out. College just um, celebrated their fifty fifth year. So it was in the beginning of this college's infancy, and they were trying to come up with a lot of really new, interesting, innovative programs. These two gentlemen, these two professors, just they went around the the country. They they talked to zoos all over the country and said, if we had a program that trained zookeepers how to be zookeepers, would would that be something you would want? The zoos said yes. So they got the go-ahead to do it. So we um, started at a different site with um, basically cast-off animals, sort of um, exotic pets that weren't needed anymore or wanted anymore. The students started taking care of them. Uh, when the college moved and consolidated here on grounds, what we call the Northwest Campus, um, we started to build the zoo grounds with essentially what you see now. The, the original trail is is basically unchanged. We've added a little bit. But, um, we started with a more professional program with, uh, getting involved in AZA, getting involved with established zoos. And now we are fully ensconced in, in AZA. And so our animals, they're not cast off animals anymore. They're not exotic, um, pets anymore. Um, we're working with SSPs. We're working with endangered species. We're working with critically endangered and formerly extinct species. So really cool history on the program, um, And again, we have proven over and over again that this is the way to do zookeeping. We are teaching hands-on in an environment, and we are giving students exactly what they need. And I think we're giving zoos exactly what they need as well. So we have a lot of zoos that are employing our keepers.
1: That is, yeah, that's really, really cool. And so let's, uh, let's step away from the zoo for a second mm-hmm. and take me back in your history a little mm-hmm. bit. When, when, when did you decide to get into animal stuff? What inspired you? And, and take me through your career a little bit.
0: Cool. Yeah. So I have what I would consider a non-traditional zoo career, especially, like I said, s- students come here and they tell me, oh, I was four years old and I knew I wanted to be a zookeeper. Um. I had no idea the career of zookeeping actually existed. And I never went to a zoo when I was a child. The first wow. zoo I went to was uh, in Massachusetts. It's Franklin Park Zoo. Love in it. Boston, Mass. Yeah. And I was in college. College girlfriend took me there. It was nice. the first time I ever went to a zoo. My mom did not like zoos when I was growing up. Uh, she thought uh, you shouldn't have animals in, you know, her words, not mine, jail. <laughs> right, um, right, And so, yeah, I was never exposed to the zoo world, but we were animal lovers, uh, very much more natural animal uh, appreciation, lots of hikes and walks in the woods and um, trips to nature parks and that sort of thing. And I really grew up appreciating animals, and I always knew I wanted to do something with animals, so that's when I got my biology degree, And I knew, hey, something with animals. I I took as many animal classes as I could, but there weren't a lot of them. I took an animal behavior class that I really loved. I fell in love with animal behavior. Nice. Um, But again, it's more on the clinical side, although I will say the operant conditioning is is maybe the one thing out of my undergraduate degree I could pull out that was beneficial, but still not completely applicable. Uh, So as I was in college... Like I said, I had this uh, girlfriend. She took me to to Franklin Park Zoo, and they had this – it was a special program set up, and you were a behaviorist for the day. And so your job, they showed you all about gorilla behavior and um, ethograms and how to take and record animal behavior. A special, like, room set up with one-way glass at Franklin Park Zoo where you would observe the gorillas – And you took data on them. Wow. And it was a pretty long program. I think it was like a half day or a full day program is a really cool introduction into zoos because it immediately opened my eyes and said, whoa, so zoos are more than just having animals in enclosures. It's, there's a lot going on
1: here. Right, right.
0: Um, And so that always stuck in the back of my mind. I graduated. I got my computer job. I really didn't like it, but I made a lot of money. But in the back of my mind, I just knew there was something else I could do. So I actually went back to Franklin Park Zoo, and I volunteered there for a year. I volunteered on Sundays in the vet department. And this was an awesome experience. Because on Sundays, there was one vet, there was one vet tech, and then there was me. Nice. We were the vet department. And so... They didn't schedule procedures on the weekends. It's too much. You, you, you need too many people. But we had to respond to all emergencies, which did happen. And so, and then I, my main job when I was there was to help with that, but to also take care of the animals that were in the ward under treatment for whatever reason. So I took care of Jake the snake, who was a 20-foot-long boa constrictor. <laughs> and I had never held snakes before at all. <laughs> and so here I am with a 20-foot long like oh, show okay how do i do this exactly you know and he had to soak him in a tub um we had to catch a clip springer one time in a um in a holding pen concrete walls all the way around and the clip springer literally ran on the walls did circles (laughs) on the walls it was incredible um i had to set up habitats for um a variety of parrots variety of birds some a couple of primates um We had, you know, there's also the sad when you're in a veterinary department, we, um, it was Massachusetts, things got icy one time, there were bongo antelope, and a bongo antelope went outside and on the ice and splayed, couldn't get back up, we had to euthanize. Mm -hmm. It was really sad, but that was my first large animal necropsy, and it was incredible. And, you know, it's one of those things that I learned early is you want to learn as much about these animals for as long as you can, and it, it is absolutely sad when they pass. But there's still a lot to be learned about these animals even after they're passing. And I had a huge appreciation for these animals after this necropsy. And so I was involved in that. And um I've had lots of animals pass during my time as a zookeeper. It's one of the unfortunate things about being a zookeeper is um you you live with them and you love them long enough to see them pass away. Right. And it's never, it's never a good day. But what you do have to do is you have to set aside Your personal feelings, once they've passed, do the job you need to do. And a lot of times that involves the necropsy and being involved in the necropsy. And then, you know, a lot of times it's a later time when you grieve. But um, so I had incredible experiences at Franklin Park Zoo. And then um, I had this opportunity again. My undergraduate professor called me up. He said, I'm running a research project down at Busch Gardens. I'd like you to run the research project. So I did that. I ran this research project and I did um, zookeeping for part of the time. And so the project was: we were studying the vocalizations and the um, hearing of hippos. And so it was a really cool project. He he had discovered; he was the first one to discover that hippos can hear and vocalize both above water and below water, and they can do it simultaneously. So we huh. did some um, acoustic work with them, and we did some. Uh, it was pretty complicated. It was it was basically giving the hi- hippo a hearing test underwater. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really a cool opportunity. But during that, I became a zookeeper at Busch Gardens as well. I did um, guest experience, so I was out on the on the path talking to guests, and then I was taking care of some amazing animals: hippos, baboons, uh, lions, hyenas, meerkats incredible animals. And I was at Bush Gardens for a few years. Really enjoyed my time there. Then I went to Zoo Atlanta, and I mostly I am uh, mostly mammal centric. I would say. Um, Worked a lot with the hoofstock and rhinos, giraffe there at at, um, Zoo Atlanta. Um, I did spend some time with primates there, with the orangutans, some of the small primates, mona monkeys, drills. uh, Worked elephants there at Zoo Atlanta, which was an incredible experience. I was very nervous about working elephants. They're so big, powerful, smart, way smarter than me. and. We were lucky we had really good girls there and they basically trained me. You know, they basically (laughs) – I did the motions for the operant conditioning and they they essentially uh, did what they were supposed to do. And it was really between those two facilities that I learned a couple things. Operant conditioning, training, working with your animals and having them work with you is the key to um, solid animal management as well as um, that zoos work together – And zoos zoos partner really well together. And we can accomplish a lot by partnering together from my, after my time in Atlanta. And and as I was moving through, I was going sort of slowly through the management ranks. I went to um, Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago and I worked there for several years and again, moved up um, a couple different roles, started hoofstock, worked uh, cats, the lion house bears as well. Um, Did some swinging, keeping to a couple different places, worked seals there and really had a good time. Uh, but eventually, this position at, at Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo came open, and it was originally an assistant director and a an associate professor. And I took it because I, I liked going higher into zoos because I thought I could make a bigger difference. But I also wanted to train zookeepers because what I was learning was again, you're not trained, you don't know how to do the zookeeping work you have to learn everything on the job. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So why don't we just train them how to do everything on the job here at the college? So I came down, I took this position. And then about a year after I took the position, um, the director retired after 35 years and I took on his role as director. And so I mostly am a director now. Um, I do still a little bit of teaching. I teach uh, one introductory zookeeping lab because I do like to be involved in the instruction of the students. Um, But absolutely my... uh, days of zookeeping are, are behind me. Um, my body tells me that, um, <laughs> all the time, but yeah, and you know, and, and as I was explained, explained to you, I don't know everything about all the individual animals out there anymore. And it is sad sometimes, but I just, I can't, I can't keep all that stuff in my mind. And when you're not working with them, you don't keep that. But I have amazing staff members and amazing zookeepers here that know all of that information and get, can give you all that information at, at the drop of a, right, a right. hat, you know? And it's just fun as you progress through your career, you have to make choices. And I tell people this all the time the farther you get away from up, the farther you go up the chain of command, the farther you get away from animals, which are the things you love. Um, But sometimes you make those choices because you think you can make a bigger impact. And sometimes you can. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I will tell you is for all the zookeepers out there listening, or aspiring zookeepers even, is um, don't ever discount your ability. And strength as a zookeeper, and I don't mean physically, but I mean you are a tremendous force in this field. People come to the zoo to see the animals that you work with. You're the one that can bridge that gap between the guests on the sidewalk and the animals. You are literally the one who keeps that relationship. You can connect the guests to the animals. And you do a better job of connecting the guests to the animals than anything else in the world. And that has been proven by studies time and time again. You talking to guests, connecting the guests to your animals will make a difference in those people's lives, and then ultimately those animals' lives in the world. And so that's what we're all about here is um, we're making dreams come true, but we're also saving the world. And that's – got to come in here. You have to believe it. And if if you believe it, we can do it, you know, because we – we need the world needs some saving.
1: Absolutely, it does, and we're going to talk about some of the conservation uh, cool. programs here because they're really cool. But before we get to them, I want to touch on a couple of just some of the individual animals and species here um, because uh, you you guys have some cool, some rare stuff, some cool Florida stuff, and also, like I mentioned, you have some matchy's tree kangaroos, and i I would be remiss to not talk about all of them always when I get the chance. <laughs> so um, let's let's start off talking about some of the Florida stuff. Though. Uh-huh. Um, you guys have some pretty cool stuff going
0: on here. Yep, yeah, we got a lot of cool Florida stuff. We're in Florida. We want to focus on the native species. This is what we do. So we want to connect guests to the native species. I think people don't realize a lot of times they come to zoos for exotic, crazy, wild species. There's a lot of cool stuff going out right side of your door,
1: especially in Florida. Especially I've in seen Florida, so much cool stuff. Absolutely,
0: down here. and the stuff that's supposed to be here, let alone the stuff that's not supposed to be right, here. Right, right. But the stuff that's supposed to be here, um, we're really proud of our predito key beach mice and um this is one of those tricky things because again they're not viewable to the guests right now we have actually we've had a setup in our in our herp house before um where you could see that the beach mice but they're nocturnal species so you come by the herp house you look in a tank it's a dune there's nothing else in there well there's a mouse in there but they're sleeping so they weren't a great display but we do great conservation work with them. We are breeding an endangered species. It's found on one key, one island in Florida. It's between the Florida-Alabama border. We breed them. We work with Brevard Zoo um, and a West Palm Beach Zoo. And we are breeding and maintaining this species. And it's a small mouse. It's a field mouse. You wouldn't think much about it, except unless you saw them. Cutest mouse you've ever seen. <laughs> and I got to show you a picture. They're the cutest mouse you've ever seen. And we are doing a great conservation work by... Enabling this small species, another really cool small species, the most endangered bird in the United States, the Eastern Florida Grasshopper Sparrow. Unassuming little bird, big voice, and what we are doing is we are holding males. Well, that's not a breeding program. What do you do, holding males? What we're doing is we're holding the males because the facility that's breeding those males, when they're breeding those the species. If there's too many males around, they won't breed. They're will just too, they too busy competing with each other. So we've taken some of the males. We have them set up here. They can sing to their heart's delight. They can try to attract as many females as they want. They can't, but they'll try, right? <laughs> and what we do is we hold them for potential breed or potential release back into the wild. It's a small species. We created the habitat here on grounds. We take care of them, and we're doing our part for conservation. And it's just Awesome. So, most of our native species, the flora species, they are either injured, non-releasable, um, or have some sort of conservation value that we're breeding and holding them. But we're not grabbing them from the wild anymore. That's just not what we do. Right, right. We are holding, breeding, and releasing. And so, We've got them, we have uh um, well before we move on from those two,
1: because yeah. I just the thing that I need to point out here is uh for my listeners, when 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 you know, we went and we did the whole behind the scenes tour thing and stuff and it was very cool. Um, both of the facilities that, that hold the mice and the birds in question here are they're great. They're, they're in good condition. They look great. But one is basically a repurposed trailer. And one I honestly thought was just a, like a little garden you guys had set up. I mean, that's what the, <laughs> yeah. the you know? The, it's, it's, it's exactly what it needs to be, and I'm not saying this at all disparagingly, but like, you could walk by both of these places and be like, oh look, there are some like shack type looking mm-hmm. things. And they are the hope for these <laughs> species. And I just, I always find that so fascinating.
0: So, it's so incredible. Even the, 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 the cherry on top of the beach mouse um, repurposed trailer. Originally, it was called the rat range. We bred our own rodents here to feed out. So originally, we bred rodents in there to feed out to other collection animals. <laughs> and so we've repurposed it from that to a whole thing. And like you said, the future for, for that species. And it's just really cool. And absolutely, that's that's what I love about the two things there were small facility, the smallest facility in Florida, one mm-hmm. of the smallest AZA facilities in the country, And we are still doing conservation. We are making it happen here at the zoo. And you don't have to be a big zoo to do conservation. And again, it doesn't have to be big conservation. You don't have to be just saving elephants to do conservation. That's great. That has its place. And that is very helpful. But all the little pieces go into this big, humongous puzzle. And we're doing it here. And we're exposing the next generation of zookeepers to conservation. How cool is that? They they get to care for endangered species right here on grounds. How about that as your first ever zookeeping position? Oh, would you mind taking care of this highly endangered bird? The most critically endangered bird in the United States. How about that? And that's that's what they do here.
1: Yeah, and that is really awesome to see. Um and then so uh they're not native, but so let's let's talk about the tree kangaroos for a minute because um, <laughs> my explored you, if I don't. Yeah, yeah. You
0: held off for so long. I I'm know, so right? proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> you get it. You get it. You get me.
1: Um but yeah, so there are, there are two tree kangaroos here. Uh-huh. Um Echie and Adelaide. Yeah. And uh, just tell me a little bit about them.
0: Yeah, and they're, you know, the the cool thing about tree kangaroo they are rare. They are, um, so they're native to Papua New Guinea. They are incredible animals because they look like living stuffed animals, Yes, you know? And, um, what I'm, I'm proud of a couple of different things when it comes to the species. First thing I'm proud of is that my staff is highly involved in their conservation work. They're highly involved in, in the species survival plan for Tree kangaroos, for the Manchus tree kangaroos. So, the so they are involved in the breeding recommendation and the education of uh, these animals, or the public about these animals. They are involved in the conservation efforts and linking what we do here in zoos to conservation in their homeland. We purchased coffee that was grown in their native land under the trees in which they live. Right. So most coffee is uh, planted in bright, sunny areas way you get bright sunny areas is you chop down all the trees. That doesn't make for a good habitat for tree kangaroos. Right. So what they've done is they've actually worked with the farmers in the area to keep the trees. They plant coffee under the trees. They harvest the coffee. And then we are selling it in our zoo, amongst other zoos. And a profit, a bit of the profit goes back to those farmers. And again, so we're doing our part for tree kangaroos right, on all right. different levels.
1: And that's awesome because what a lot of people don't realize is, um, you know, trees get cut down as coffee is being grown, and that is when tree kangaroos evolve into kangaroos. No, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> have to keep it light occasionally. You, you,
0: you heard it here first. <laughs>
1: no, but um, no, but that is really cool, and I'm hoping you have some coffee out there now because I'm a, a coffee holic. Uh, uh,
0: yep, we got some. I need you. some we tree kangaroo some.
1: coffee. We so got
0: some. Excited about that, and and so we're doing the conservation part, but then we're also. We're taking care of the animals here on ground mm-hmm. and we have done a great job with the breeding and care of these animals. So part of keeping populations as stable as possible is breeding the animals we have, breeding them in a way that's diverse and we can keep as many genetics as possible. We've had a lot of success breeding um, tree kangaroos, having joeys born here and sending them out to other zoos. And so I'm really excited about that part too. And part of it was, um, you know, when I came here, one of the thoughts, the, the, the conventional wisdom was true kangaroos don't do well with lots of different stimulus or don't do well with a lot of change. Well, again, we've got about 90 students in our program that all shuffle through that area one in two weeks at a time. They have lots of different keepers that are taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're an area that's really busy. You know, there's, there's a lot of noise around. We're right next to I-75 here in Florida. It's a really busy highway. They do really well. We've bred there. We've um, sent kangaroos across the country. We've gotten again new kangaroos, and we're actually looking at expanding potentially our breeding here at the zoo. Highly recommend it. <laughs> Highly recommend it.
1: Preferably by my next Florida gig, which might be in February. Okay.
0: If you can yeah. Make it. yeah. 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 And if if <laughs> Get we if we if we need uh, anybody to to pet tree kangaroos with, is that something? I'm
1: I'm I'm willing to. Okay. Yeah. I, reasonable rates. Reasonable. <laughs> rates. <laughs>
0: nice. Good. Good to know. Good to know. But, but there's such a cool species. They are so dynamic. They're they're interesting. They are different. Uh, they are rare in zoos. Probably only twenty five zoos mm-hmm. or so have them. So it's great for us to be able to talk about all of that stuff to the public. We can really capture the public's imagination with that stuff. We capture the zookeeper's imagination with all of this different different stuff we're doing. But the important part is how do you link the animal you have to some sort of conservation effort? And that's what we do. You know, you have to do that. If you're not doing it, you're not doing it right. Right. Absolutely.
1: And I think it's also super important to point out that, like, just because a species is managed by an SSP and has breeding programs and breeding wrecks and stuff doesn't always mean it's the most stable population. And tree kangaroos are right at that line. They're like under 50 individuals. You know, um, if if one dies unexpectedly or something, it really mucks everything up. Um, So to have the successful breeding, the regular successful breeding here is not just important for all the normal reasons, Um, but because literally the population really depends on this and not having a problem there. We're we're not pulling them out of the wild. We're not, like you said, not doing any of that. And it is, it is right at that, like,
0: Ooh, it's it's a Mm -hmm. scary
1: number, but if things keep going well, then it won't be. Right. Um, and I just, I think that's important to point out with tree kangaroos.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, every, every individual is important to us regardless, but absolutely you nailed it is when you deal with a small population, every individual is Crucial. Yes. What it boils down to.
1: Yeah. I, I really need to stop picking favorite animals that are all super endangered. Though, <laughs> sometimes I worry about what will still be around.
0: <laughs> but you know what? You know, here's, here's the thing. And we talked about it. And how do you get involved in conservation? How do you get involved in the things that you do? Why did you start this podcast? You know, because you love animals. There's nothing wrong with loving animals and loving an animal that you can talk about and you can champion and you should champion Mm -hmm. it. And you should talk about all the animals that you love and you should inspire other people maybe to love that animal or just find some other animal that they love and they can champion. And if we all took care of this earth, this place, all the places we live with the idea that if I take care of this earth, it could help. Tree kangaroos, even if they're across the planet, like mm-hmm. that's a great thing. If you can use less plastic today, tomorrow, the next day, so that less goes into the environment, the ecosystem and poisons waters because all the waters are connected, we can make a difference. We can truly make a difference. And it starts with that passion. It does not start with, it. I'm never going to get across to these students, you know, like you really, you know, here's here's the science behind this stuff. Here's the data to show this. It's about love. It's about passion. That's what inspires all of us. So hold on to that. Do n- never <laughs> never be shy about your love of animals.
1: Oh, trust me, I'm clearly not. I mean, clearly not. <laughs> um no, I, yeah, absolutely passion is is everything. Yep. Uh, I talk about it on the pod all the time. It's one of my favorite words along with favorite, which people make fun of me for cuz <laughs> I have multiple favorite species. And you, you know how it is when you're passionate. Of course. You, yeah, it all comes right, right. together. Um Very cool. And then so you actually made one of my dreams come true today. And so (laughs) I wanted to kind of share about that. Um, For those listening, this might not sound like a huge deal because you can have these encounters at basically any zoo. But today, for the first time, I actually got to meet and feed some Galapagos tortoises. And it was magical and everything I hoped it would be. Um. So just take a minute and, and talk about the tortoises here. And especially I think their location in the zoo is important and speaks to the care, you know, that, that animals get. So talk about that a little
0: bit. So there's a couple things here that, that again, we all have to, we have to be careful about assumptions because again, John comes in here, he's done a bunch of this stuff. He's done it. He's talked to a lot of zoos. He has a lot of experience. He's clearly knowledgeable as I'm talking to him. So, we're going around the zoo and some things I explain and some things I gloss over. And then we come down to Galapagos tortoises and I pick a few leaves and I come over like, hey, let's go just feed these guys. And I just nonchalantly, you know, give him a leaf to to feed Galapagos tortoises because I assume, oh, you've probably done this before. you've, You know, again, just we all make assumptions about other people's experiences and we have to be careful. This is a truly... He told me this is a lifelong dream that I made come true without even me giving it a second thought. I'm glad I can do that, and I'm excited that I can do that, and I hope I can do that on a daily basis.
1: Y'all, when he started picking leaves and we were outside the tortoises, my eyes got so freaking big. <laughs> I got so excited. And it's it's funny because I know so many even casual zoo-goers who are like, oh, for 30 bucks, I can feed a tortoise here, and, and they do it. Yeah. I just haven't yet, and yeah. now and it was so cool. It was so cool, but anyway. So go and, ahead.
0: and so we just yes, we fed we fed the tortoises, <laughs> and I and I was explaining the tortoises are in an off exhibit area, so they are not viewable to the public on a normal basis. We do the the Galapagos tortoise feedings here as well, and um, it's one of those things we're starting back up now that we're we're through COVID. But um, it's one of those things that even before we did the feedings, we made the choice to put them into an off dis- display area because it was larger. It was sunnier, and it had a a lot more grass for them to graze on. They were originally in a spot close to the herp house. It makes sense. The tortoises are near the rest of the herp collection. They're easier to maintain, easier to get to. Collection was all easy to view. But it was an area that we got them as as dinner plates. They were very small tortoises, (laughs) right? They were this big. And so they're now very large tortoises. I don't have weights on them because they're tough to weigh. uh, But they're about 28 years old, and they're getting very large. They outgrew their exhibit. Their exhibit got too shaded because we are in a forest. We love our trees here, but not good for tortoises. So we made the choice. We're going to put them in an off-display area. Just because the public can't see them is no reason to sacrifice their welfare because that's the most important thing, the welfare of these animals. So we put them in a place that's very large. It actually has way more grass than we expected. We actually cut the the exhibit in half so that we we could cut them off from it so they could eat all the grass on one side and then we could shift them to the other half. There's so much grass, they don't even eat it all. They can't even (laughs) eat it all. But it's great. It's the way it should be. They've got a big mud wallow. They have lots of sun. They have lots of shade. They have zookeepers that still visit them and care for them and check on them many times a day. They're living their best life, and that's the most important thing. Do we want more guests to see them and be inspired by them? We do. Is it in our plan to try to Bring some paths down there. It is, but then we bring paths by some other sensitive animals that we walked by. You know, so we walked by a Guam rail breeding facility, right? Which which we will
1: talk about here in a second. That's a
0: sensitive area. Yeah, and so I have to make those decisions. What's really the most important thing? And if you start with welfare, if you start with the animals' welfare, and you focus on that and you keep that as center priority, everything good comes from that. Because the public will feel that. You're going to get some grumbling about it, but the public's going to feel and see these animals and see that they are well cared for and they are appreciated. So I I love the glops. They are um, an incredible species. They are, if you have never had an opportunity to interact with a tortoise of any kind, but certainly a glop, please do it. They are charismatic. You will fall in love with them. I don't care what kind of... Um, Preference you had beforehand, you will love the Galapagos tortoises once you spend time with
1: them. Can confirm. Can confirm. As of today, can confirm. Um, and their names are Mo, Larry, and Curly. Uh, yeah. So I love that. Just as a little bonus fact for y'all. Uh, good naming. Good naming. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So let's talk Guam rails because yep. um they were extinct in the wild mm-hmm. and y'all helped fix that little problem. We, so let's we, talk about that.
0: We did. We helped fix it. So we uh the, the Guam rails native to the island of Guam. Um. Brown tree snakes were introduced to that that island. And this species of bird, very unassuming, um, only stand about hmm, 8 inches, 12 inches off the ground. They're a ground-dwelling bird, brown feathers. But in the sun, they are iridescent. They have incredible plumage, and they literally sparkle. But they're a ground-dwelling bird. Live their lives in the ground, lay their eggs on the ground. Tree snakes were introduced. Snakes eat the eggs and the birds. So before they were completely um, take uh, uh, basically killed off of this island, uh, the government came, and U.S. government, along with the, the government in Guam, they took a bunch of the birds off, and they created uh, a breeding program. We weren't part of the original breeding program. We can't claim that. But we are part of the program now, and we have been for several years, and we have been very successful at breeding Guam rails here, so much so that uh, some of our our offspring have been shipped back overseas to the island of guam and they have been reintroduced not to guam but to a neighboring island uh, off of guam called Rota. and so they think they removed all the tree shank- snakes from that island so they reintroduced this bird to that island with the hopes of getting rid of all the snakes on guam and completely reintroducing onto guam so there's steps but they're no longer considered extinct um Birds are extinct in the wild. Right, right,
1: and that's that's slightly unfortunate yep. in a way. Because, it is, it yeah, is You used to have the ability to say, you know, <laughs> hey, come work with an
0: extinct species. Absolutely, hey, so. can I show you an extinct species? <laughs> Most people are like what, and like I would tell them about it. But it's a good problem to <laughs> right, have that right, we have we have made inroads. Here we are again, small AZA zoo, smallest Florida zoo, and we are making a difference. We didn't do this alone. I'm not saying we were the ones that did, but we helped. We stepped mm-hmm. up. We have a passionate staff here that is absolutely front and center on conservation at all times. And we made this our mission, we followed through on it, and we have been involved in this for as long for a long, long time. And we will continue to be involved in this as long as we can. Um, so much so, again, we are looking at expanding our Guam Rail uh, breeding facility so that we can breed more. Of them, and again, hopefully, continue with this population growth. But it has been great, and again, our students—how could you not be inspired when you come in here? And you, potentially, your first day—if you came into this program—if you really gonna give up this other random gig you have, like <laughs> making music or whatever you do—become a zookeeper. Come to the program. One of your first days as a zookeeper, you may work with a Guam rail. That I mean, amazing. it's one of things you could step in with, and it is—it's incredible, and I think it really humbles. And it really um, puts everything in perspective when you can say that you know I'm potentially working with a, a species that was extinct, and I could help bring back even more. Right. So right. it's it's cool. It's, that is it's really cool. cool,
1: and it's 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 kind of funny too. You know, you everybody in a zoo says that they are conservation focused, and yep. it is it is true to varying degrees, of course. But it is it is it has always been true in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, you really, really are conservation <laughs> focused because every single time that I have changed from a conservation animal story to just an animal story, you spin it back to <laughs> conservation so quickly. And I mean, in a very authentic way, but I can tell that's just really where your heart is, which is amazing.
0: It I, is. I love that. It is. I mean, that's the um, thing. Like even I, you know, I, I love, it's like the cheetahs. I love the cheetahs. They're, they're, they're great. But again, their conservation story is even better than that. Right. Them. Right. And again. We every, we try to weave that into whatever we do because it is the difference. It is what makes the difference. We cannot hold we cannot hold animals in a facility just for people to look at and be done. That is not doing any good. It doesn't help anybody. We're here to educate and we're here to conserve. And if you're not doing those two things at all times, then you're not doing your job absolutely
1: and i i wish a bunch of non accredited roadside zoos would would hear that but you know we'll get there
0: well, you we'll know there. what we do is you know we we try to and and that's why i think accreditation is so important it's important because people need to understand that we are holding ourselves to the highest standards possible again we had the accreditation team come in here and it's like imagine your mom and your aunt and I don't know, some uncle coming into your house and literally opening every single door, every cupboard, every cabinet, under your sink, looking under your bed, every single spot within your house. And it's literally like that. You know, and again, they are zoo professionals and they want, they want us to be successful, but they're going to hold us accountable to very, very high standards. Right. And I, and I appreciate that. And you always think you're holding yourself to a high standard. You're always thinking you're doing your best. And we, we had high standards, but there's still, we can do better and we're going to do better. And they pointed out some things we're going to do better on. And we're going to do those things. And again, we're going to keep on keeping on, but that's, that's, what it's all about is pushing the standards of, um, of education, of husbandry, of welfare, conservation, pushing all those standards all the time. And we're not going to stop.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) Um, Was there anything else about the zoo or the program or any animals here that you really wanted to touch on?
0: Um, I just, I I don't know. I think I've spoken for too long as it is. Um, (laughs) And I can keep going on and on and on. Um, I just think that we got a really unique program here. We got a really unique situation here. When I came here in 2009, I would have never dreamed what I was actually stepping into. I had no—I I thought I knew, but I had no idea really what we could accomplish as a, as a small facility. And again, some people think the big zoos—they're really doing it, and they are. There are—I mean, I've worked for big zoos that are mm-hmm. doing incredible work, but everybody can contribute in their own way, and we contribute really, really important things to this field we are training the next generation of conservationists and again i think we do it the best way possible and again we're inspiring that conservation we're inspiring the love of animals we're inspiring the love of education something that sometimes is lost on some zookeepers that love 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 of education you have to get out there and speak to the public are they annoying yeah (laughs) are they frustrating sometimes yep Are they going to ask you the same questions? Absolutely. (laughs) But that's what they do. And your job is to answer those questions and be excited about it every time so you can connect them to those animals. That's what they want. Why do they yell at your animals? Why do they shout at your animals? Is that frustrating? Absolutely. But you know why? Because they're trying to get the animals to look at them so they can connect to them. They can't do that. They can't connect to the animals. You are the only one who can connect them to the animals. And that's your job. You signed up for it. If you don't want it, that's fine. Get out of the way, because we got a lot of people that actually want your job that are willing to connect people to the animals and do a really good job at it. So, I I think there's a place for everybody. I think everybody should follow their passions. Zookeeping isn't for everybody, um, but if you have a love of animals and a love of conservation, regardless of your field, just like what you're doing, you love animals. And you are doing it in your own way. And that's what we need. Everybody in their own way, in their own field, in their own profession to inspire that love of animals.
1: Love it. And then I I hate to even add anything after that. It was so good, but we have (laughs) to. I'm legally required. I will get in (laughs) trouble from my fans. But uh... it's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh, no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story. You hit me. <laughs> Best transition ever.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like so hard to, honestly, it is so hard. Like, which one is it? Is it the 16-foot poop? Or is it the um, the technically not poop, but excrement? The the five-foot backwards urination stream? What? Like, which which one is it? Like, all of the
1: above? All of the above? Um, um,
0: the, the 16 foot poop is my first job. My first actual paid job was working at Busch Gardens with hippopotamus. Um, still my favorite animal. Nice. So people ask me, you know, you get this question all the time. I get it too. What's your favorite animal? Favorite species is hippos. Favorite individual animal is bongo antelope. And her name was Ariel. Right. So completely different. You're like, what? It, just, it is. Right. That's that is right. So hippos, still my favorite species and one of the things i absolutely love about them is um the way they the way they poop the way they defecate right they um if you have not seen a hippo poop oh my goodness you i just i you know what i am so jealous for people right now that have never seen a hippo poop i'm so jealous that you get to experience that first time right um Look it up, maybe I should I'll try to find you a good video, yeah, definitely if, so what I worked on was back in the days when we didn't have cell phones on us all the time, and we right, couldn't right. just shoot video all the time, but man, so um at Bush Gardens, behind the scenes, we had a mostly concrete area, and they had a pool, but it backed up to the the habitat, and the habitat was this gunite wall, and um gunite is a fake rock they used to make it look like an exhibit, and so one of my first jobs was cleaning. The, this gunite wall and i have one of my the older keepers that i work with was like yeah john you gotta get way up there way up there and i have a deck brush that's what like six foot and i'm like six foot and so and i've got a reach i got an eight foot reach and a six foot and i can't get all of this stuff off the wall and i'm like what is what do, what are we doing like what are you punking me for what is this thing he's like what do you mean? was that thing i'm like what am i cleaning he's like you know what you're cleaning and i'm like no he's like oh let me show you and he called the hippos out and Brought him onto the patio and then we just hung out for a while. I'm like, what are we doing? This guy is old and crazy. <laughs> what are we doing? And again, Brit never like didn't, didn't grow up going to zoos, didn't know a lot. And um had these two hippos, we actually had four hippos, but a big female came out, Cleo. Cleo comes out hanging out with us, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden she backs up, backs up to the to that ball or to that spot where I was cleaning. And just all of a sudden, Starts moving her mouth and chomping, and then the poop starts flying out the other end. And then they have this big flat paddle tail, and they paddle flat, 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 and the poop literally flew. You hear that expression? Yeah. And the poop literally flew up the wall. That time she didn't hit the sixteen mark, and 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 Dave was like, "Yeah, she didn't hit that sixteen mark this time." But like sixteen feet is like where they can fly up the wall too. But <laughs> then um, the males are super awesome too because when they do it. Um, Am I allowed to say penis on the air? You can say anything. Cool. Oh my goodness! Their their penis comes out, and they not only they defecate and fly the feces everywhere, but their penis comes out. It's a little like corkscrew penis, and there's urine everywhere and flying in circles. And they chomp their mouth at the same time, (laughs) and it's just like the biggest display ever. And it's cool because that's what it is. It is a display. Like they are. I'm the big hippo here. Uh, This is my spot, and this whole area is mine. And so, oh, my gosh, it was so incredible and awesome and so much poop everywhere. (laughs) So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my poop story. Poop story. That's one of my poop stories. Poop story. So many of them. But that's that's like hippos are, they're just just incredible animals all over. I didn't get into them because I don't have them here. Right, right. Um, And I'm probably not going to get them anytime soon, even though I love them
1: very cool well thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate
0: it absolutely again it was it was uh, a super pleasure and i appreciate talking to you appreciate your love of animals thank you i appreciate you are educating as many people as possible about animals and that's what we all have to do we all have to take our gifts our talents and we have to use them to conserve animals and save the world Is that too much to ask? I hope
1: not, because that's my goal, too. That's mine, too. Love
0: it. Take care. Thank you.
1: Y'all, Larry Moe and Curly were awesome. And while I didn't get any uh, audio of meeting them because they didn't make any noise— uh, I did get lots of pictures, and I will be sure to post them on the Instagram for this episode's post, so make sure that you do check that out whenever you are listening. It will be there waiting for you in my normal feed. I also have to tell you that I left this zoo not only inspired, but um, with a bag full of cool stuff. They have not one, but two different books about tree kangaroos available there. One's just kind of a cool little small pamphlet that they have that talks about the conservation of the species. And one is like a children's book about tree kangaroos. It's beautifully illustrated and it is just amazing. Also, they did have some shade grown coffee. So uh, I did get myself some official tree kangaroo saving coffee. I'm feeling really good about going back home and starting to cold brew that bad boy up. Which, not that it's related to the episode, but hey, I like sharing fun facts about myself with y'all. Uh, I do not drink hot coffee. It could be zero degrees out, Celsius or Fahrenheit, and I am still rocking the iced coffee. Um, hey, I am who I am. But anyway, if you would like to check out the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo online, their website is https colon slash slash www sfcollege.edu slash zoo. And you can also find them on Instagram at sfteachingzoo. Or just search for Santa Fe Teaching Zoo on Facebook. And remember, friends, Santa Fe Teaching Credits Backwards is Steiderk Gnaikea Atnus F. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.